O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. This is the Sunday edition for September the 26th, 2021. The psalm today is Psalm 124, and that's the place where I kind of want to begin because it, it, it encapsulates what I want to talk about today, and, and that is where does your power come from? Where does your strength come from? It begins this way, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us up as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. It's been kind of an odd week for us this week. I think that that passage right there kind of encapsulates the the way that I feel and have felt for the last six months, which is that if the Lord hadn't been on our side, then we wouldn't we would only have one son living. Instead, the Lord took our side, and I'm so grateful for that, and I've also had a couple of opportunities in the last week to pray for other people, who one of whom has a son who's older than Will, um, but nonetheless had a stroke uh, at the age of like 42 or 43, and, and nearly died from it, and she reached out to me that night and, um, and said, please be praying for my son, and, and so it was a pleasure uh, to do so, and, and God is healing him. He is bringing him back and restoring him to his family, his wife, and three children. It's an exciting thing, but it's because the Lord is on his side, and he told the story of uh, having a vision while he was in the ICU of, of a huge angel there watching over him, and he knew that it was breathing and it beating its wings, and it was the breath of life that was being pushed into him through that. And it's been really exciting to see um, how much of this he ascribes to the work of God in his life. We had a friend who had a similar kind of a vision of Will when he was in the hospital. Of uh, She told me that I think the first day, maybe the second day, that, that what she saw was this huge angel, larger than anything she'd ever seen in her life, that was standing over the bed, behind the bed, sort of keeping watch over him. And so Every single day after that, when I first went into the room in the ICU, I greeted that angel and thanked him for keeping that vigilant watch over him. And especially as we went through sort of a comedy, not at the time, but a comedy of errors with misdiagnoses by doctors in that ICU unit that that we needed the Lord to protect him (laughs) from the harm that wasn't intentionally aimed at him. But through misdiagnoses, they put his body into some shock and things like that. And so the inflammatory response was was evoked when there was no need for the body's inflammatory response. So I I believe the angel watched over and tended over that process. and, And we're grateful for that. I have another friend who, who reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and said she had a friend that they were really afraid was going to die. She was in the hospital with COVID and all this. And, and so we started praying and 
um, the Lord turned that situation around. You know, that doesn't make me anything special. I'm just, in all these cases, privileged to be part of a group of people who pray for things. But there's been plenty of times in my life when I have not seen it go the way that I wanted it to go, right? Um, that, that I've prayed about things, in some cases, for years and never seen the fulfillment of it, and in, in some cases seen it, it go in exactly the opposite direction from what I prayed. So there's no... Um, there's no magic <laughs> in my prayers, but but that doesn't mean I stop praying because occasionally we see things that are that are glimpses of God's power and God's glory, and and, and we are praying in accordance with His will, and we see then w- what God does. And so sometimes we can pray uh, for things that are other than God's will, and sometimes we see that clearly in retrospect, right? I mean, we'll pray for something fervently and, and, and earnestly desire something, and only later, after we've not had the thing that we prayed for, do we see that God had a better plan for us, and we were better off without that thing, um, or that person, or that, that place, whatever it is. Um, it, it's... It's an unusual life, and sometimes you have to kind of live it in reverse. About, I don't know, 30 years ago now, maybe, something like that, a long time. Um, I was out walking in the Chickamauga battlefield in Chattanooga, as I was wont to do. On the Friday after Thanksgiving, we would go and visit my parents for Thanksgiving, and then on Friday morning, I would head out early and go out and walk in the battlefield. And one day, I had picked up the trail at the wrong end, and so I wasn't seeing any of the blazes or markers that told me I was on the right path. Uh, and at one point, I turned around for some reason and saw the blaze behind me go pointing the other direction. And I realized that I had started at the wrong end of the trail and then began to apply that same idea to my life and began to look back across my life to, to see the places where there were more or less inflection points where I wanted a certain thing to go a certain way, and it went exactly the opposite way, and how thankful I was that, that God had not granted those prayers of mine. So, so it's not always the places where, um, where, where you see God do things in accordance with your prayers when you're excited about that. It, sometimes it, it's better to look back and see, what if God had granted the prayer that I had at those inflection points in my life? that put me in a different place than I wanted to be or with different people that I wanted to be with. There's all kinds of things like that where, where I could look back and, and now be thankful for that in looking back at it, that, that God had prevented me from, from my own um, sort of bad uh, desires in some way or another. And so it, it's, it, it's the thing that we need to focus on is how do we, how do we have wisdom in the moment, how, how do we pray according to God's will? And it, we won't always do that. It's, it's just not going to be possible because w- when we pray for people, we pray for them because we love them. You know, it, it's, it, I'm not dispassionate most of the time in my prayer life. I, I have um, a desire for, for a particular outcome. Um, it's, it, so it's, it's difficult to do that, but at the same time, what we need is wisdom and we need power. We need God's power. We need to, to recognize that, that we do the limit of what we can do and, and then we leave the rest to God because it, it's not that we're supposed to be powerless or that we're supposed to live a meaningless existence and just be passive about everything, but we need to know when to be passive and when to be active when to leave things to God, and when not to sort of panic and overreact, or, or overreact not in a panic way, but in an angry way. And so how do we navigate 
those kinds of situations where where we might want to take action, but the reality is is that we need to to wait on God. We need to pray and we need to ask him for wisdom to know what to do. And then when we get that wisdom, we need to act on the wisdom. <laughs> if the wisdom says God's saying not to do anything at the moment, then we need to heed that. If God's saying do something, then we need to heed that as well. And so it requires wisdom on our part to know these things. And and the way that we do that is we, we immerse ourselves in the Word of God, we immerse ourselves in prayer, and then the service of God, worship, uh, is a part of that service, but also how am I available to God to be used by Him on a daily basis? And so it's that walking with Him constantly and allowing Him access to everything that we do and seeking His will in all things is that prayer says that, that we would, um, that, we, that I began with, grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may be partakers of your heavenly treasure. Is that what we're doing? Are we running to obtain his promises? And that's kind of the theme of, of what I want to say, is, is that run to obtain his promises means embedding yourself completely in him, abiding in him, just as Jesus said. So in this first passage today, which is the first 10 verses of chapter 7 from Esther, and then it skips forward to the end of the book of Esther, um, so as to... Um, to skip over the, the sentencing and the changing, changeability of the king's edicts and all that. You can read it. It's a certainly it's a wonderful uh, book. God's not mentioned in the book. He's there in all things and superintending all things, but, he, but nowhere does, does God appear in the book of Esther. So in, in the king and Haman went into— Haman was a, a, a royal official who was uh, zealous for promotion, let's say, and he hated— this man, Mordecai, who was Esther's uh, uncle, who had kind of raised her into this position, got her into the place where she could be the queen. Uh, and, and so uh, Haman constantly was scheming to try and destroy Mordecai, but that wasn't even enough for him. He wanted to destroy not just Mordecai, but Mordecai's people as well. And so he had devised a, a way of doing that and, and, and tricked the king into it. The king was a moron. There were multiple times in the book when he gets tricked into doing incredibly stupid things, and he jumps to conclusions all the time. But, but the more he's had to drink, the easier it is to trick as well. And so the, the, now there's a gallows that's been put up at Haman's house because he believes that he is going to be able to trick the king into having Mordecai killed. But the problem is Mordecai had done something for the king, in fact, it saved the king's life. Um, some years prior. So anyway, so the king and Haman went to feast with Queen Esther. Esther had set up this feast um, because she's trying to work a way to, to cancel the edict to kill all of the Jews uh, that, that Haman had tricked the king, Ahasuerus, into, into granting, and, and she wants the, an end to, to Haman for his hatred and, and his vile um, actions towards her people. So she's, she's established this feast. It's the second time, actually, that they've had a feast together, the three of them. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What's your wish, Queen Esther? It'll be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my requests. 
which had to have completely puzzled the king because he had no earthly idea that Esther was one of these Yehudim, the Jews, that he had issued the edict for. He, until this moment, he had no idea. And it was a dangerous, dangerous thing for her to say this because now, uh-oh, she, my queen is one of those people that I've been convinced were so horrible and needed to be wiped off the face of the earth, the people who wouldn't follow my commands, they follow their own laws, those people? It's the same kind of situation as existed in the time of the Exodus with Pharaoh, who was threatened by the existence of this large group of people among them who had their own gods, or God, as it were. So she pleads with him, and he has to be confused here, like I said, because she has no, he has no idea that she's Jewish. And she says, what do you mean, let my people be granted for my request? For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Look, if it were just slavery, if it were just, you know, as horrible as that could be and as horrible as it was in the Exodus, if we had just been sold for slavery, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have said anything. But there's more to it than that. We've been sold to be killed and slaughtered just like Pharaoh slaughtered the Hebrew children. I mean, there's, there's so many echoes of the Exodus in this, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. So then the king, Ahasuerus, said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman, who is right there. And he was terrified before the king and the queen. And then the king gets up in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life for Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. He knew how this was going to play out. And then the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Again, echoes of um, the, the beginnings of the Exodus, the beginnings of the, the the issue with Joseph being accused of taking advantage of the uh, the wife of the man that he was serving at the time. And so here it, the king comes in and he misunderstands this situation. He doesn't see Haman begging for his life. What he sees is a man trying to um, rape his wife, essentially. As the word left the mouths of the king, they covered Haman's face. And what that means is, is that, that in, in those times and, and in that region, what would happen was once a man had been condemned to die, they would cover his face. So he were as good as dead. And so that's what's happened here. The king says this, and they immediately cover his face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants on the king, said, Hey, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. That's about 75 feet high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And then there's some other stuff that happens in all this. As I said, please read that. Uh, And then Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. That festival is known as Purim. It's the casting of lots. There's a more behind that than that. But it's a, it's a, a time of great celebration. It's costumes and uh, all kinds of things that go on during the, the Feast of Purim, uh, which is in the spring. 
So that that's that lesson. And what is the lesson of that, right? I mean, so it's Esther trusted the Lord. She made herself known to the king as one of those people, one of those uh, dreaded outcast people who were who were uh, scheduled to be annihilated in the land. It was it, he. The king had authorized genocide and more, because genocide tends to be ten percent of something. No, he's going to wipe them out completely. That that was the edict. It was is that that it was open season on Jews. And so here, what she does is she identifies herself as a Jew. It's important for her to do that, as it was important for Moses to identify himself as a Jew when he came before Pharaoh, because he had grown up in Pharaoh's house, but he had to change his identity. He had to take on a new identity from, oh, this is the one who was raised in the household. He had to take on the the identity of, of being a Jew. And he first chose to do that um, when he stuck up for the Jews when an Egyptian slave master was mistreating them. And then when he comes back to the land after he finally says yes to God's commandment to go back and be the deliverer, human deliverer of the people, as he goes back into the land, remember that suddenly the Lord breaks out against him, and it's because he hadn't circumcised his children. And so there in the wilderness, those children have to be circumcised because he can't have a foot in both worlds. His children can't have to be part of that covenant as well. And so he has to have those children circumcised before they come in. It's important for us to identify ourselves and to identify ourselves fully with the people of God. And so that is what Esther does in this and makes her appeal not as queen, but she makes her appeal as uh, one of the people who this king is bent on removing from the face of his kingdom. In the gospel passage today, John says to Jesus, this is Mark 9, 38 to 50, John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And so what it would imply here is something you see actually in, in Paul in Acts. Um, there, there, it's a counterfeit thing. It's somebody using the name of Jesus in order to do something. You see that with the seven sons of Sceva, for instance, who, who decide that they don't know who Jesus is, don't really care who he is, but they see Paul doing great things in his name. And so then they began to try and invoke the, the, this Jesus— who Paul knows and speaks of in order to do miracles. Well, the problem was that the tables got turned on them and the demons came after them because they didn't. They said, we know Paul and we know Jesus, but we don't know you. And so it's the same kind of thing here. These, these people have seen the power in the name of Jesus, and they're co-opting it and corrupting it for their own purposes. And so that's why John is upset with this. He says, Jesus says, don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. In other words, if they're able to do things by invoking my name and, and co-opting that power of that name, then, then later they can't say bad things about me. And so it's, it's important for us to understand these things. We need to see that they're not part of us, but, but we need to be careful about how we deal with that because we don't want to bring dishonor on the name of Jesus. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So it, it, we, we need not um, distance ourselves from people simply because they're not in in the same club. In other words, I mean, they're not following us. 
um, if somebody treats you well because of your allegiance to Christ, because you belong to him, if they do it for that reason, then there's a reward, he says, for those people. And then he, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, children, um, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There's a reason that, that we need to be careful about what we teach children and teach our children. We, we, we need to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and in the word of the Lord so that they'll know these things but but when we corrupt children jesus says that that's the worst thing you could do if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell and unquenchable fire if your foot causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell and if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it's better for you to enter the kingdom of god with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched that's a powerful idea, right? I mean, most of us would have to be lobotomized because where's the source of our real problem? Well, it's, it's in our minds. It's in our hearts because the heart conceives of th- or the mind conceives of things, and then the heart desires those things that the mind conceives. And so the sin generates from within. And Jesus says this again and again in Scripture, but, but what he's saying here is, is that, you know, the old saying is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, so, so that if somebody does something to you, then you in equal measure can respond to them. You can, it, it's a limitation on how much the response can be, that, that it has to be a proportional use of force. But, but Jesus comes and says, apply that same thing to yourself. If your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, then deal with that. So it's it's so deal with that eye for an eye issue, but but within yourself, fight the war within. In the same way that 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 old parable of an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth applies, go after sin in your life with that same attitude. Take that attitude towards sin in your life and deal with it ruthlessly. He says, and so um, does he actually mean that we should poke out our eyes and cut off our hands and our feet and all that? No, he doesn't. Obviously, he didn't mean for us to to maim ourselves. <laughs> Ultimately, there'd be nothing left, right? I mean, what's the source of the problem? It's my mind and my heart. Whatever my mind can, see, can conceive, my heart will desire. It, it, and if you doubt that, then then look at the world that's around us today, you know, the, and, and look at what he says in... Um, Genesis 6, about the state of the world in the time of Noah, the only um, desire of man's heart was only evil all the time. And, and so that, that's the, the genesis, the beginning of sin is desire. But, but it can be conceived first in my mind. I, I can see something, I can envision something, I can set it up such that it, it can only be desired. And that's exactly the message of, of Genesis 3, actually. It's desire. Isn't it good to be desired? Doesn't it? Isn't it beautiful? It, it, it tastes good, and and it's also desirable to make one wise. So if you got all that desire built up, then you go ahead and take it, whether you were told to do it or not. Doesn't really make any difference because um, you have desire, and we, we're we're called to live at a level higher than desire. We're called to live at a level that we were created to, which is to say no. And to be able to stand firm against that temp- that temptation, if we are truly abiding in Christ, 
if if his if he is our highest desire, if we are running to obtain his promises, then we may be partakers of the heavenly treasure. But but that's what we're called to be. But but that prayer that I prayed at the beginning, which is the colic for the day, uh, begins this way: Oh God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. So we're to deal ruthlessly with sin in our lives because of the mercy and the pity and the grace of God towards sinners. So we know that we have forgiveness in him, but but it's up to us to take the action to deal with the sin in our lives. And he finishes this passage today with, everyone will be salted with fire. That's a very it's it that that passage right there has puzzled commentators down the ages i mean nobody seems to know exactly what that means the salt is important obviously um and sacrifices were to be salted before they were placed on the altar so but but what does it mean to be salted with fire and and so i've seen a million different um interpretations of what that might mean while i was preparing for this this week and and maybe one of the most persuasive ones was, at least for me, <laughs> said, you know, it, they, they believed that it was actually a Hebrew idiom, and then translating that idiom into Greek didn't translate the idiom. It just translated the words, if that makes sense to say that, that the, the idiom meant something. And what, it, what they were trying, what, they, what they're suggesting is what it says is that, that everyone who's destined for hell will be destroyed with fire and if you reverse it then then it's easier to see the logic behind that um but because he's what he's been talking about hell through all of this and so but but i'm not positive that that's right and and neither i mean the interpreter seemed to be but i'm not sure whether they whether they were or not that's not universally thought salt is good but if the salt has lost its saltiness how will it you make it salty again. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's that preservative nature of salt, but also the, the saltiness that we bring to the world, that we bring a distinctive flavor to the world that, that's only possible in Christ and by being filled with the Holy Spirit. It, it, that one of the most interesting things about salt you'll ever see, and this is a, salt has a preservative effect, but it can also have a curative effect, right? Epsom salts and things like that. We use those things for curative power. Um, in in Second Kings two, after the death of or after the the ascension, really in the in the chariots of fire of Elijah to heaven, Elisha. His successor goes back to Jericho, and and the men of the city said to him, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant. In other words, this is a wonderful place, as my Lord sees with his eyes, but the water's bad and the land is unfruitful. So it looks great, but it's not. It's not a good place because the water's bad and, and the land is unfruitful, and those two things seem to be connected based on the way that Elisha takes care of this. So Elisha changes a city here, changes the the. Uh, aspect of the city. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha spoke. And so once the water was healed, then the land could be fruitful and productive again. And that's exactly the, the application that I would give you. Is First thing he says is, bring me a new bowl. It can't be something that's already contaminated. It's got to be new. It's got to be made fresh. And that's exactly what Jesus does with us. He creates by the power of his Holy Spirit, cleansing in us, he creates a new bowl and then fills that bowl with salt. And that salt then has curative and healing power. It, it makes us new and it makes us different. And so it's that same basic idea that, that impelled Elisha to do this. And so he followed what God told him to do, even though it didn't seem to make any sense to just throw a little bit of salt in the water. But the reality is that little bit of salt changed the fortunes of the entire city because it made the, the water good and the land fruitful. <clears throat> in the epistle today is James five thirteen to 20, and James is telling us how to deal with issues and troubles in our lives. If anybody among you is suffering, let him pray. If anybody's cheerful, let him sing praise. So pray and worship. If is anybody sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And remember, with the, when the men bring the paralytic to Jesus, the first thing he does is he pronounces that, that your sins are forgiven. And that really upsets the people there, because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, okay, so which is harder, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your bed and walk? And, and the, the answer is, well, it's harder to say, take up your bed and walk, because well, we can have proof of that. So Jesus does, and the man gets up. And, and the assumption there is, is because that's harder than the other also happened. Jesus didn't just say some words. No, his, his sins were actually forgiven, and the proof of that was the man walking. And it's the same with the resurrection of Jesus, that our sins were atoned for at the cross when Jesus took on our sins. The proof that that was effective and true and happened is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which is the means that we also will be, because we stand positionally in his righteousness. And those are important things for us to remember. But so so. James is saying, whatever your issue is, go to God with it. You know, if if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, rejoice. If you're sick, if you have sin, go to other people and ask them to pray for you. Have people come and pray for you. It's important that we do that. And like I said, I've seen the power of prayer and the power of of answered prayer over these last several weeks in a couple of different occasions, and, and I'm grateful for that and thankful for that. And then he goes on to say, uh, James does, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And you might say, well, I'm not a righteous person. Well, confess your sins to the Lord and allow him to take that sin away from you and stand positionally in his righteousness and then pray. It's important that we confess our sins before we pray. It's important as a daily and maybe hourly or, or you know, semi-hourly or whatever— uh, practice that we confess our sins, that we, that we keep short accounts with the Lord, that we that we not allow sin to get hold, that, that we deal with it as we see it in our lives, as He reveals it to us in our lives, in order that we might have more power in our prayer. Because He says the power of a, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, and so we need to be those people who are pursuing righteousness. If we would have power in our lives, those two things go together. 
He said Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Again, going back to that same thing with Elisha, when he healed the water, that's exactly what happens here. Elijah was considered a righteous man, and so the, so his prayer had power, because in all the peop- among all the people of Israel, including the king, he he was remaining faithful to God in a time when it was difficult to remain faithful to God. And he called the king to repent and return to God. And yet, in spite of the fact that he's a king and Elijah just a guy, Elijah had the power because of his righteousness, because he cut out everything else. He refused to worship any false gods and only worshiped Yahweh. And so his prayer had a power that even the king didn't have. And he was able to shut up the skies for three and a half years to try and get this king to repent. And he wouldn't do it. And then finally, after he defeats the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, then he prays that rain would come because the people had begun to, to make some sort of a turn at least to the Lord as they saw the power of God displayed on Mount Carmel. And he ends up with, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, there's only a small portion of that that you can play, actually, because that small portion is you can speak it, but the Holy Spirit has to do the conviction. And without the Holy Spirit doing the conviction, you can't turn that person back. But you still have a responsibility, as Ezekiel had a responsibility laid on him, that if you know somebody's in sin, then then you're to confront that sin for them. And if that person repents, that's great. But if they don't, then then it's on them. But he says, but if you don't tell them, then it's on you. And I remember when, when I was at Swanee, we had an honor code there that, that required us to, to sign a pledge at the end of every single test we ever took. Teachers were not allowed to stay in the classroom during a test. In fact, because the honor code was intended to work this way, that it, that if you saw somebody cheating, it didn't matter what your relationship to that person was, we, you were supposed to take the honor code seriously enough that you wouldn't want anybody to cheat and get something that they didn't deserve. So you were required to turn them in. And in fact... If I saw you see somebody else cheating, then I was bound to turn you in as well. And that's the way this works. We're, we're bound as brothers and sisters in Christ to call one another to pursue righteousness. And pursuit of righteousness means to forsake sin. And so we have a responsibility one to another to call one another back from sin towards righteousness in order that that person might, might fully participate in the kingdom now and in eternity. It's important that we do that. It's important that we understand the power in the name of Jesus. And the power in the name of Jesus is the power of life, right? So the power of life is in Jesus. And so it's important that we con- continue to call one another in, in love <laughs> to repent of sin. Whenever we see it and the person seems unaware that what they're doing is sin, then it's our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to call them into that. It, it, it's never pleasant, and, and it frequently doesn't work because it's not received with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's not your problem. It's not our responsibility. I can't be the Holy Spirit for you. But, but I can, however, speak into your life as you can speak into mine, as people did. While we were struggling with all this thing with will, people spoke into my life about my own sin towards my son. And it's important that, that we are able to hear that and that our hearts are soft and that we're willing always 
to hear the conviction of his Holy Spirit regarding sin in our lives. It's an important thing. If we want to experience the power of Christ, if we want to see the power in our prayers, then, then we would listen. We would do well to listen and to pursue righteousness in all things and be willing to be corrected.